Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 15, Believe the Works. What's the difference between eternal life and the kingdom of God? What is power evangelism? Is the gospel supposed to bring division? This week, we pick up where we left off last week as Steve discusses the second half of John chapter 10. Last week, we started on John 10. We did the first 21 verses, and tonight we're going to finish that, uh, John 10, 22 to 42. Um, could somebody read for me um, John 10, uh, 22 to 30? If you could do that, that would be great. Somebody with a good, loud voice. Who wants to do 22 to 30? I will. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, that you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Thanks. Um... Well, let me give you a little bit of background. The, the section that we had uh, earlier um, was about two and a half months before this. This is the Feast of Dedication. And so there's, there's a two and a half month interval between the first 21 verses and these verses, although the theme is the same about the shepherd and the sheep. And the, the Feast of Dedication, if anybody cares, is Hanukkah, which was about the rededication of the temple. And what that is about is in 167 BC, the Maccabees had a successful uprising and they drove the Syrians out. The Syrians had desecrated the temple. They just used it for their own purposes. And so that um, this... This is a dedication that goes on, and most of us know about Hanukkah every year. That's what this is remembering. And it's again and again the Jews are rededicating themselves to the temple. And we've talked before about how Jesus is, he's the new temple. Um, this is the last time in John's Gospel, there's a, there's a growing momentum, and there's a real shift that starts to happen at the end of this chapter. But it's the last time that uh, John uses the setting of a Jewish feast. We had the Passover, we had the Feast of Tabernacles, and now Dedication. And what connects these two sections that we did last week and now this week is the shepherd theme. So, the second thing I want you to notice in this passage is that Jesus' message was controversial, and it brought division. It always did. Um, The last section ended with some believing in him and others saying that he had a demon. We covered that last week, 19 to 21. And it happens again and again throughout John's gospel. And we we must not overlook, because we're reading it 2,000 years later, uh, just how controversial his message was. It was a great threat to the principalities and powers. And frankly, it was a dangerous message. 
when the disciples became aware of how dangerous it was, we see them running in the middle of the night for their lives. And this section we're going to look at right now ends with people trying once again to kill Jesus, to, to stone him to death. So why is the gospel that Christ preached, why is it such a threat? It's because he was announcing the arrival of a whole new order, a whole new kingdom. And his message was about rule. Who was going to rule? A favorite passage for me is the Magnificat, which is in um, Luke 1, I think it's 47 to about 53. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Probably many of us have heard, heard that just, we just came through Christmas. But I want to point out three verses to you that I think highlight why Christ's message was such a threat to the powers. Mary's prophesying, and she says, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. I think we'll touch on this in a little while again. But, but we, when you read the gospel, it's important that we understand he's not just talking about oh nice sheep and shepherds and you know we picture little boys in bathrobes. Um, he's he's talking um, he's talking about a whole new order, and it really was uh, an upheaval. It was a controversial message. <coughs> so in verses twenty five uh, to verse twenty four, John takes us back. To where we were last week, and in fact, what is woven all the way through this gospel. Two basic questions. Is Jesus the Messiah, and does he make himself God? So they said, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. He says, Jesus responds, I did tell you, and you don't believe. Tell us plainly is a response to the fact that Jesus almost invariably used figurative language, and certainly he just did in those first 20 chapters. He talked about, or 20 verses. He talked about the, the shepherd and so forth. Um, and in fact, remember I told you the first six verses, he didn't even personalize it. It was just a general concept. So, tell us plainly is because they weren't getting what he had to say. Why wouldn't Jesus tell them plainly that he is the Messiah? I think this is huge. Because you watch all the way through the Gospels, he won't just say, he'll say, well, you say I am, or whatever. He won't say to them, yes, I am the Messiah. Here's why, I think. Because in first century Palestine, the, the Messiah had a nationalistic, even military connotation. Jews were looking for someone to overthrow the oppression of the Romans. And Jesus refused to identify himself in that way. He refused. He would not. We've talked in past weeks about canonic love, self-emptying, poured out. That is the way he rules. And he would not take part in this. So instead, his response... Again, he doesn't answer the question directly. His response is to point to the works that he's doing. And he's going to do this again later in this passage. He, Jesus did this with John the Baptist's disciples too. Remember when John was in the uh, um, dungeon 
in Matthew um, uh, 11, 4 and 5, and he sends the disciples, his disciples, to Jesus, are you the coming one? The coming one was a, a, a term, a title that, that all the Jews knew. It went back to Deuteronomy 18, 15, because God had promised through Moses, there's going to be another one like Moses. Are you the coming one? Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm the coming one, though clearly he was. He says, look at the signs. Look at the works. He says, tell John what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. It's very interesting how he always responds to that very direct question. He says, so I did show you, and you didn't believe. Why were they not convinced by the works? Well, these verses tell us it's because they're not his sheep that hear the shepherd's voice. Remember, he said all the way back in last week's passage, and he'll say it again in a few minutes. If you're my sheep, you'll hear my voice. And they couldn't hear his voice. They don't belong to him. He says in verse 4 that his sheep follow him because... They recognize his voice. There's a relationship. I think that uh, John is probably the most relational uh, gospel of the four. It's just kind of a general opinion I've got. But um, You know, it's interesting. He addresses this not hearing because they're not a sheep um, in uh, Matthew. Matthew addresses that. Uh, Jesus says this. He's explaining it to his disciples because he's telling parables and the, the guys come to him and say, Jesus, like, why all the figurative language? What's going on? And he said, this is, this is a confirmation. This is fulfillment of Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, his prophecy. And then he quotes it. Hearing you, uh, hearing you will hear and not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have uh, they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn. They've got, the ones that are not as sheep have got no ears to hear, and frankly no eyes to see. This, this used to amaze me, before I understood this, years ago, when the, I would see incredible healing, see miracles. And, the, and, the, and the, the people would just lean into it, and others, it's like they couldn't see it. Maybe some of you are nodding. You've had that experience with other people who don't know the Lord. And although people that don't know the Lord, often they just turn to Him. But sometimes they just can't see it, and it's right in front of them. Um, so this is an issue he's talking about here of relationship. Um, he says, they're not my sheep. That's why, that's why they can't hear. That's why they don't follow. They're not my sheep. Which takes me back to one of the scariest verses in all of Matthew, in Matthew 7, when the people say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do the stuff? I mean, we healed the sick. We did the deal. We served at church. We went to every conference. We did the stuff. And he says, but I never knew you. And you guys know that word is, is a real intimate, close word. But I never knew you. So... We contrast that in verse 27. We're going right verse by verse here tonight. Um, there's a contrast presented. My sheep hear my voice. Now, I want to turn this a little bit because I'm convinced, you know, all my years pastoring too, that we as believers, we strive to hear his voice. 
If I'm a sheep, I gotta hear his voice. So we see it as like a goal. I, I was on the phone yesterday with somebody I'm discipling, and, and how can I hear his voice? My sheep hear my voice is not something to strive for. It's an invitation, not a goal. It's a wonderful promise. And I think we spend a lot of time trying, trying, trying to hear his voice because we think we're supposed to. But he says, relax. You're my sheep. You'll hear my voice. That's hard for us to get our heads around because we're so analytical. Was that me? Was that my imagination? Was that God? What is that? I don't know if I can hear him. Ah, if I had a dollar for every person I talked to all my years as a pastor and now even with Impact Nations, on the issue, I can't hear his voice. We'll relax. We'll get a cup of coffee. Because um, it's a promise. It's not a goal. And I think that's a pretty big shift for us. We need to learn to just rest in this. In fact, I'll just take a little detour. We all have different ways to hear his voice. For me, I'm in my study, in a chair. It's just a comfortable place for me. I usually have a little bit of music on. I tend to like Renaissance music, but there you go. I think it would work with Baroque. Um, And for me, it's just a time of just being quiet. Just being quiet. Sometimes I say the Jesus prayer. Do you guys know the Jesus prayer? It's gone back for centuries and centuries. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It just, that happens to be for me, just becomes a place that I slow down and slow down. Anybody besides me have trouble with a racing mind? Mm-hmm. And just slow down and gradually I'm just resting in Him. Because it's a promise, not a goal. Does that make sense to everybody? Sure. Did I just give you some good news? Yep. All right. Um, and he says, hearing leads to following. My sheep hear me and they follow me. I've been really enjoying the church fathers, the, 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 uh, the writers and leaders of the church in the first seven or eight hundred years. And one of them I like very much, uh, John Chrysostom. He said this, if they do not follow Jesus, it is not because he's not a shepherd, but because they're not sheep. <laughs> so again, it, it, it turns this thing. All right, number five, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life. I want to talk for a few minutes about this whole concept of eternal life. It is a very, very rich term in John's gospel. He uses it nine times in this gospel. Um, I keep telling you the same stuff week after week. Pay attention to things that are repeated, that come up again and again. He's trying to say something. And eternal life for John does not refer just to everlasting life. Many of us who come from a conservative evangelical background, we think of eternal life slash heaven where I go after I die. Right? Um, But that is not what he's saying. It's not just the quantity, but the quality of life. And for John, eternal life begins as soon as we come to faith in Christ. It's, it's the invitation that's already there that we get to say, okay, I see it now. I see that you've done this for me. And um, so it's about relationship with the Father and the Son. A lot of commentators, a lot of them, see eternal life, which is John's favorite description, as being synonymous with the kingdom of God. 
you, you, you can read that again and again and again, that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the kingdom of God. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven primarily because of his Jewish audience, but the kingdom of God. And John rarely uses the term, but he talks about eternal life. And so they're, they're synonymous, but I think there is a shift, a bit of a difference, because I think that eternal life has a much more personal connotation than kingdom of God. Kingdom is basileia, and it, it has more to do with Christ's rule over all creation. Now, it is a place we are invited into, it's a place of relationship, but there's a little more of the rule than, than John's connotation of eternal life. But they overlap, I'd say, whatever, 62.3%. Um, one of my favorite verses, again, is in John, the, what's called the priestly prayer, in John 17, a whole chapter of a prayer that Jesus prays. And in John 17, 3, he says, now this is eternal life. And he doesn't say, now this is eternal life that you can go to heaven and be there forever. He says, this is eternal life that they might know you. He's talking to the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is all about relationship and that's the invitation that Jesus gives. And when we get a hold of it, it begins to change everything. It begins to transform us. That's why Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17, beholding God, we are transformed. Beholding Christ, we are, we are changed more and more into his likeness. Um, Romans 8.29, he says, that that's, that's, that's God's great purpose. It would be, we would be conformed into Christ. I don't think it's, I've said this before, I don't think that's just uh, moralistic. You know, will we become more righteous? I think it is this relationship that the Son has with the Father. We are transformed by that and into that, that invitation. We'll touch a little bit on that in a couple of minutes. So let me give you that again. John 17, 3. It's not about heaven one day. It's about now. It's not about quantity, but quality, although it includes quantity. But its focus is this. Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now we're hitting, I think, the high water mark in this section that Cookie read for us. First, the second half of 28 and 29. He says, and no one, he's talking about these sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Anybody notice parallelism there? He says almost the very same thing. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. John is being very, very pointed in this parallel that he draws my hand and my father's hand. And in case anybody misses what he's doing, he says it flat out in verse 30, the father and I are one. The father and I are one. Everybody see that? Okay. This is one of the greatest expressions in all of the Gospels of the complete unity of both Identity and purpose between the Father and the Son. It's a unity of, of their essence, of who they are. 
It's a unity of power. It's a unity of common purpose. And these verses that I just gave you, the 28 to 30, um, contributed historically, hugely, uh, in the development over the first four centuries of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm sure you've been told the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. And as you read it, it's a fascinating study. It, it gradually starts to grow. There's kind of an awareness of the incarnation. And then that grows and that grows. And we get to what's called the Nicene Creed. And that grows. And now with that is this understanding of the relationship. I gave you a word last week, perichoresis, which is it's, it's the divine dance, the relationship that is full of surprise, full of life, that is always going on between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So these verses right here uh, were a huge contribution to the doctrine of the one divine nature in the Trinity. Three persons, but one nature, one God. Um, and so I see this passage as, as a high water mark in John's Gospel. So <clears throat> let me take a couple more minutes, everybody still with me? On summarizing John's presentation of the relationship between the Father and the Son. I even went from A to G, so here we go. For all you type A's who like things in nice neat row. A, the Son came from the Father. He came from the Father. John 8, 42. I didn't come on my own, but He sent me. Okay, the Son came because the Father sent Him. Number two, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. That's a quote of John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son. He says it, I, it cracks me up because in the... John 5.20, he says it among the Pharisees. Oh, the, the, the Father loves the Son. And the word he uses, phileo, means, means affectionate touch. And it drives the religious people crazy. Religion will never know if God loves them. It just hopes. But relationship experiences that. So he, he says the Father loves the Son. And out of that love, he's given all things into his hands. See. The Son knows the Father intimately. Intimately. John 10, 15. We touched on this last week. The Father knows me and I know the Father. Again, the, the poverty of English language. Know is this deep instead of two-dimensional in, in the Greek. He, he knows. He experiences me. He, he, he understands. He, and on and on. Okay? Um... D, the Son, out of his relationship with the Father, he only does what he sees the Father doing. A classic for that is John 5, verse 19. E, the Son is taught by the Father. He says, the Father taught me and teaches me all things. That's John 8, 28. Do you see how this theme of the... Of the the total oneness and unity of Father and Son is just woven all the way through John's theology. Um, F, the Son is sent into the world by the Father. You want to know something that as I studied this? The Son is sent into the world by the Father. John says it 
15 times. Isn't that amazing? Let me just give you a few, because I see a few of you taking notes here. Uh, These are all in John. 523, 530, 536, 639, 644, 1036. And G, the Son shares with the Father in giving life, including raising people from the dead. John 21. He shares in giving life. The oneness that John presents, uh, that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, one of my favorite verses. And, and I like it in the um, Christian Standard Bible, where it says the exact expression of the Father. So there's this oneness. He says, I and the Father are one. This reflects, when he says this, I'm sure his listeners would know because he is he's reflecting <coughs> the single most sacred passage for all Jews. What's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And he's saying, I and the Father are one. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Remnant Generation in Kampala, Uganda. Every year, the Remnant Generation rescues dozens of pregnant teens from sexual abuse or a life on the streets. The girls are given a safe, loving environment and the medical attention they need to carry their babies to term. Once their baby is born, we help these young mothers get the training they will need to find employment or start their own business. You can help. For as little as $50, you could help cover the cost of a prenatal doctor's visit. For $600, you could pay for all of the medical costs for one pregnancy. Imagine being able to help usher in a new life on the other side of the planet. To get involved, please visit impactnations.com slash TRG. And now, back to the podcast. So, would somebody be so kind as to read verses uh, 31 to 39, please? Somebody with a loud voice. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, verse 31 opens this this session again with um, radical words and a violent response. Um, Verse 32, Jesus responds to their anger and their aggression, again, by pointing them back to the works that he has done. He keeps coming back to that. You notice that in this passage? I've shown you many good works from the Father, uh, which of these works, uh, for which of these works are you stoning me? Um, 
The word works is ergon, E-R-G-O-N. And it is a favorite word in John. It's another one of those things that goes all the way through. In fact, he uses the word 20 times. Um, <clears throat> and it is works or miracles. Not usually healings, but works or miracles. It'll say in most of your Bibles. Um, and Jesus is saying that hearing and following the Father's direction led him to do the Father's works. So really interesting verse in Luke 2. At the very end of, of you know, that Christmas chapter, we've got Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple, and his, his parents lose track of him for three days, and they're worried sick, and they come and they finally find him. And he says, some of your translations say, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? But some of your translations say this, and I think it's a stronger translation. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Um, it is about the works of the Father or the Father's business. Um, I had a pastor who used to say the, the Father has a family, the family has a business, the family business is people. But Jesus was about the Father's business and John uses the word ergon again and again and again, doing the works of the Father. So now we come to verse 33. Things are getting pretty heated up now. And uh, we aren't stoning you for good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is the, actually, this is building up for all these chapters. This is the first time his opponents actually say it, that they accuse him of blasphemy. It'll happen again, but this is the first time. And, um, and, and what they're saying, they're not saying blasphemy in the more typical sense of saying bad things, but God, oh, I don't believe in God, God's not real. They're saying his blasphemy is that Jesus is making himself to be God. However, and I think John is very much trying to make a point here, and it's a, it's a complex sentence, even... Jenny, as you were reading it, I was aware it's filled with subordinate clauses and everything else. I'm sorry, the old English teacher just came out. But um, um, Jesus is not a man making himself God or making himself anything else. But the religious leaders are finally getting the implication of this radical message that he's been sharing. And what is really going on here? is not that uh, a man is trying to make himself God. But if we go all the way back to the prologue and all the way through the journey we've taken, it's the opposite. He is the Word of God, the Logos, who has become man. You get that? He is God who has become man. Let me just say, we'll talk about the Incarnation another night, but, but I think that that the incarnation the incarnation is not about Jesus losing his divinity at all it's about him adding humanity to his divinity okay we'll talk about that more another night but I just throw that out there so 
Jesus goes on and he responds to their charge by quoting Psalm 82.6. And let's, let's look at this a little bit because it's, it's also a bit tricky. 34 to 36. He says to them, Isn't it written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called those whom the word of God came to, uh, uh, called gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? He says, your own scripture, he says law in the broadest sense, because he's quoting uh, Psalm 82.6, but he says, your own scripture says this, you are God's, you are all sons of the Most High. Now, I don't know about you, but for years I would read that and I think, where's that coming from? It's like it doesn't seem to hardly fit with the discussion. Anybody else ever have that feeling when they came to this? Um, well, he's referring to kind of two branches of rabbinical teaching of what the Jews got from their own preachers. And uh, this points, this passage, uh, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High God, this points to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. By receiving the law they were taught, it made them more noble than other nations, other people, even made them divine. And yet, of course, they failed to follow the law. They all knew that. I mean, that's what the Old Testament teaches, how they, they failed in that. But they never forgot its promise. And they saw its promise in Psalm 82 as you are special, you were even divine. And there was a second teaching, rabbinical teaching at that time, that, that said in the Old Testament, judges were considered to function like gods because they were the administrators of the Word of God. Does that make sense? Okay. So what Jesus is implying in all of this, he's saying that if men are gods, then how much more is the Son who is the Logos of God? He's basically using logic on them. John is implying that in Jesus, the union of humanity and deity had arrived. Okay? And so Jesus is once again declaring his unique place in creation as the one the Father set apart and sent into the world. You see that verse, verse 36? The one. I'm not one of, I'm the one he set apart, absolutely unique, um, and sent into the world. Because, he says, I am the Son of God. Did you see that? He says, I am the Son of God. Did you notice that? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This is the most explicit declaration so far in all of John's Gospel. He says it by implication. He says it sometimes a little bit indirectly. He refers to himself, in, for example, John 5.25. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. But he never says, and by the way, that's me. Um, he, uh, in, also in John 5, uh, he, oh, John 9, he heard, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, 
And when he had found the man, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? It's strongly implied. But this is the first time he flat out says, I am the Son of God. Everything is climactic in John. He's building and building and building. So, then verse 37 and 38. Somebody want to read 37 and 38, please? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So again, Jesus returns to that he is doing the, the works, the ergon of the Father. <clears throat> and he says again, if you can't believe me, then believe the works or the miracles because they point to me. If you want to make a note, um, 1411, John 14.11, he'll say almost exactly the same thing. He says, if you can't believe me, I understand that, but believe the works, because they'll point to me. You know, most of you know that that uh, a great influence in my life was John Wimber. I was with the Vineyard and Wimber for many years. And, and one of the early things that we learned from John Wimber back in the 80s, which isn't a very big surprise now, but back then it was a whole new paradigm, he talked about power evangelism. Not apologetics, not trying to convince people of the, the, the veracity of the gospel, but demonstrate it. Let the works change people's minds. If you can't believe me, believe the works. And, you know, this is what I saw. Um, I was in Toronto three weeks ago. I was in an Arabic church, had a great time. And as I usually do on these weekends, I took them out on the Saturday. They went to a big mall in Toronto. And... Uh, they had never gone out. And in fact, Ken was visiting here from Ontario, told me tonight, this afternoon, that he just got talking to somebody in the next chair in the church. And they told him, oh, you wouldn't believe what we did this afternoon. We went out and there was healings and there was this and there was that. And we've never done anything like it. And I remember that night that the testimonies went on and on and on. Two, three weeks before that, I was in Bulgaria. I taught, and I said, now let's go do it. We'll do the works. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. You're in Bulgaria. Nobody will let us pray for them. Bulgarians don't do that. Well, they didn't know that I hear that everywhere I go. So I just said, oh, I understand. Well, let's try. And they came back, and you know the rest of the story. They were just floating. I mean, the pastor who was like, really wasn't sure about doing this, the first two people he met, he led to the Lord, right? So... I really believe in what Wimber taught us, that, that, it, that the works themselves. And there was a story, something happened to me. We were in uh, the Philippines. <coughs> a couple of you guys are going to be in the Philippines in uh, next week, I think. But we were in the Philippines a few years ago. And we were doing a medical clinic. And, um, and I wandered off, as I usually do at medical clinics. And I had a translator with me. And I went into the village. And I just started to pray for the sick. And I went to this house almost right away. Is, is there anyone I could pray for? And they brought me in and the grandmother was blind and she was deaf and she couldn't walk. So um, I said, well, let me pray for you. I, Jesus will heal you. And he opened her eyes and he opened her ears and she started to walk. And, and I love when he does that and we've watched that happen in lots of places. So that was very exciting. 
Well, I realized we were in this large room and the outside door was open and I hadn't noticed till I finished praying. And there were these teenagers, they looked about 14 or 15 and they're all looking in. So I didn't want to miss the chance. So I went outside and I started telling them about Jesus. And I could tell that they were not interested and they certainly didn't believe me. And so I was basically doing apologetics. And then I remembered this verse. And I stopped. Like I really was. I was getting nowhere. And I stopped. I was probably talking about, I don't remember now, 12, 15 of them. And I stopped and I said, wait a minute. Do you know Lola? You hear that small building? He said, of course. I said, do you know that she's blind and deaf and can't walk? They looked at me like I was a dummy. Of course. Of course, in their worldview, wouldn't everybody know that, right? And I said, well, Jesus just healed her. And uh, I called in, and the, the daughter brought out Grandma, and she was seeing, walking, and hearing. And now I had 40 young people. <laughs> and I told them about this Christ who just healed, and every single one of them got saved. That's like a classic example. And I think this needs, I don't think, I, I, I fight for this all over the world. This needs to become our lifestyle of just praying for people. Just praying. Can I pray for you? And uh, so that, I think, is a big lesson we can get from these verses. If you can't believe me, believe the works, the ergon, because they point to me. You know, some of you know this, that we've now seen over 2,000 Muslims come to Christ. And... Um, it has never been by apologetics or comparing Jesus and Muhammad or the Quran and the Bible, ever. No, I haven't spent one sentence of my life on that. What we have always done is, well, what do you need? And when they get healed or their daughter gets healed or whatever, say, that was Jesus who healed you. And you see, they can believe the ergon, they can believe the works. And I'll say, that was a gift from Jesus. Did you like that gift? Yeah. I've taught people all over the world to do this, haven't I? Did you like that gift? They always say, yeah. Because it's nice now you can see or something. And then I say, he's got another gift. And I tell him who he is and he wants to come and be with you forever. And they always say yes. I say always, that's an exaggeration. But about 2,000 have said yes and politely Five times in 10 years, five people in 10 years have politely said, no, thank you, I'm a Muslim. Now, doesn't that move us away from apologetics? I mean, I've got my apologetics books up there from the 70s and 80s too, but I don't use them because of this. John 10, 38, if you can't believe me, believe the air God, believe the works. Okay? So we're on a home stretch. Would somebody read verse 39 to 42, please? Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again, beyond the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. So like at the end of the first segment, Jesus' words bring about strong, even violent response. And as I told you before, this is spiritual. This is about the powers that be. 
that are so threatened. The gospel is truly confrontational. And the second thing we see here is the gospel, when it's really presented, it always separates. It separates people into those who hear his voice and those who do not. And Jesus, didn't he say that in Matthew? He said there's going to come a time when even households will be separated. I don't think he said it gladly. I think he said it with tears in his voice. But always, when the gospel is presented clearly and truly, it's confrontational. It's radical. And it brings about separation. So John's theme of, of choice and decision is, uh, is presented once again. And thus concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Join us next week for our third question and answer session. Our guest is Murray Duick, the president and founder of Samuel's Mantle Prophetic Training School. So don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com and we'll be sure to include them in next week's discussion with Murray. Also, be sure to visit impactnations.com slash TRG to learn more about how you can help rescue the life of a teenage mother and her baby in Uganda. Have a great week.